Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Welcome back to the Think Orphan podcast. I, you know, I'm just so honored to be able to do this podcast with my good friend, Brandon Stiver. Brandon, how are you doing today as we're getting ready to have another great conversation? Uh, I'm doing well, man. It's it's summertime. Uh, we're making plans for travel and and uh, man, it's good. We're just we're just living the life uh, here in Tacoma, Washington. And and how about you, man? How are things? How are things down there? Well, it's good. I've been kind of all over the place. A friend of mine uh, yesterday asked if I knew where I was in the world. It was it was like I don't know if you remember that old uh, "Where in the World Is Carmen Sandiego" game back in the day. Oh yeah. Um, but it kind of dates me quite a bit. There's younger people listening, going, "What in the world are you talking about?" Although it did, it was like an Amazon Prime or Netflix show recently, so maybe that that uh, brought some people in. Um, but uh, yeah, it's been it's been you know all domestic travel for you know obvious reasons. I mean, some people are going international, but not super easy to do that nowadays yeah. boy uh but it's been good it's been a good uh full kind of rich summer good family good uh meetings different people which i'm always loving to do getting excited that it's it's opening back up we're able to have in-person meetings with people which is just my that's what i love doing i love just connecting yeah. with people as you know i love connecting people to people and that's a lot harder when you're just looking at screens all the time and so Absolutely. so that's something that i'm really loving to do you know obviously ironically we're looking at a screen right now we're going to do this interview via screen however um it's a little different when we're able to kind of mix in these different different times and then the hope is that we will be able to sit down with each other really soon yeah no it, it is so good to start getting back uh, in touch with people and uh meeting face to face i mean uh thankfully there are people that work in our sector that live in the Seattle Tacoma area. So I've actually had to have gotten to have a couple face-to-face -face meetings that are actual work meetings. So yeah, uh, I'm just, you know, like I said, we're just living the dream, you know, uh, we're just uh, right. really thankful. So the um, bar is really low right now, right? The bar is, yeah. <laughs> what the dream looks like. Yeah, but... it's absolutely. Yeah, exactly. But you know, I got, got the talking with uh, Dan Hope and, and he mentioned how they got their jabs and uh sam rich said jabs and everybody all the british people are saying jabs so i got yeah. my jab and okay. uh it makes it makes life a little easier i guess <laughs> well i always I've, I've been talking about the fact that i have god's vaccine which is the actual virus in in you know oh. going on so i got the antibodies go. and just keep testing for that and well, you know the, you the more and more studies come out on that show that it lasts you know it lasts it seems to be lasting a lot longer than they originally expected, which is well, good. So that's good. Hopefully that's the case. And the antibodies are, are working for the people who have had it and the, the vaccines work for the people who get those and we'll be good to go. We'll be good to get so. out and just start living life. Like, uh, you know, cause, uh, I know a lot of, you know, it's, it's like, it's like a lot of things, unfortunately in our world today that cause division and this yeah. is one of them. And so I, I just, I'm looking mostly forward to that where it's not a, us versus them in any way it's just a hey let's go out and start doing stuff together right yeah lord you know? willing that's a lot well, of what we talk know, about in this show too with all these different things we're doing so yeah uh you know phil you, you mentioned not being able to go international but one thing that zoom does allow us to do is go international so yeah. i'm excited for uh today's guest and i know that you know her uh, mm -hmm. And I uh, am excited to have her on. We're having uh, Ruth Washuka join us today um, from the great land of Kenya. 
uh, East Africa. And uh, she's going to be uh, talking with us about her own uh, care experience. Um, Phil, I, I know that, that you know Ruth, that you've known her for, for a handful of years. How do you feel about this interview that, that we got going on today with Ruth? Oh, I'm super excited. I mean, it was funny because one of the first like extended conversations I had with Ruth was we both happened to be in Ethiopia and I get this Facebook message saying, oh, you're in Ethiopia. So am I. Where are you? We happened to be a block and a half from each other at different hotels. So we ended up having a, a dinner um, with a, another friend, a mutual friend, and and it was fantastic. We just were able to talk about you know a lot of what we're going to be talking about today. And so I just really respect and admire this this young woman. And um, she's not not a young woman anymore. I'm just getting older. Um, she's, she's a woman um, that is doing some amazing things, and it's just a just an incredible story. Um, and how she is just you know she's a powerhouse, man. She's she's just a, a woman who's doing some great things, which we get to we get to share with others. And, you know, we, you both you and I have have heard it. And so now we get to share it with others, which is part of why I love getting to do what we get to do. Absolutely. No, she's she's just doing great work. And and let's uh, let's jump right into the interview. Ruth, we are so glad to uh, have you on uh, the Think Orphan podcast today, uh, coming to us all the way from Kenya. How are you? Um, fine. <laughs> well, uh, Ruth, we, we were excited to have you on the podcast today. Um, you know, uh, Phil and I, uh, during the intro, we're just talking about how difficult it is to not go uh, international with some of our in-person meetings, but um, it's just a joy and a delight and an honor to uh, have you on the podcast. Um, you know, Ruth, uh, I think some people have heard you speak or might be familiar with uh, some of your background and and maybe some of our listeners haven't. So um, I would love it and just invite you to, if you could, Share with us a little bit about your personal background. Um, you have a very personal experience, you know, in this space. Um, experience that uh, Phil and I and many of our listeners would love to would love to learn from. So, um, Ruth, uh, we would just, uh, yeah, could you just introduce yourself and, and share a little bit about your personal background? I identify myself as a care reform advocate. Um, something that was shaped my, by my life growing up and my experience, um, you know, being separated from a family at a very young age and to later experiencing what it means growing up with a parent, um, but also just coming to a space where the need was bigger than just my need, but also for the community, for the country and other countries uh, that is globally. So, uh, Going back, I don't know how 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 far you want me to go back to because I I feel like I have said this many times, but uh, mine was a case of family breakdown at a very young age. Um, also had poverty in it, um, and so I I left my family at a very young age and and um, ended up in an orphanage in the city in the capital city that's Nairobi. Uh, me and my sibling. Um, at the time, of course, yeah, my mom was alive. She's still alive, yeah. And I think what we needed at the time was care and protection. My mom, when her marriage broke, of course, I still believe she was overwhelmed. I don't believe she, it was just, um, you know, negligence. 
Uh, she was overwhelmed and so she, she could not take care of her five children. So we ended up under kinship care and that is my grandmother who I so love so much. But also she was not able to take care of us. And again, now we ended up in a third placement, which is the orphanage. So I grew up um, with so many children surrounding me and they're all children in need of care and protection. Some had parents, some did not have parents. Um, those with parents were vulnerable. Um, they, they, they were poor, they, the parents were not able to take care of them. And so we all grew up in this uh, small home in Karen, Nairobi. And I think my experience being in this home is what would later shape my life and what I would really pursue in my career in terms of seeking justice for children, just because um, at some point I feel my rights were violated. And so what I feel most is that I owed the future generation a life that someone would speak on their behalf. And if we, if at all we, are, we, we have to stop some of the injustices that happen to people like us, then that is why I do what I do today. Yeah, that's something that yeah. I know you, you and I have had um, uh, some, a couple great conversations, you know, about some of these different things that we're talking about here. Um, I, I just, you know, we don't, we don't get the opportunity to talk with people who have actually been through a lot of what we discuss on this, on this show, which is, you know, the, the best practice, how we can love the children around the world with excellence, right? And what does that look like? And so to get your perspective is just, it's just incredible. So to be able to hear from you, um, you know, and we've had, a couple other people on the show who have had direct experience with um, with the homes and with the orphanages and with the different things that we're talking about today. But one of the things I want to hear from you is with your experiences and um, really your, your work with other people who have experienced the orphanages and the group homes and the different things that were that you have been able to um, you know, meet these people. What are some of the shortfalls that you saw, you experienced uh, growing up in a children's home that you've also seen as you've been, you know, talking with other, um, you know, people who have experienced uh, the life in the orphanages? I mean, I think for me, I would start from myself before I go to other people and what I think they experience. I think for me, uh, it has been majorly, you know, uh, a reflection of life after care and how that was for me and how easy or hard it was for me to integrate into the larger community. So it's it's many times when we visit orphanages and, and you know this has not been the case up until lately where now we are thinking about what happens to children once they exit, where do they go to? Do they have a family? Do they not have a family? So I, I feel for me um, as I, I feel majority of care leavers, and actually this is a reality, that they do not have a safety net or a fallback plan. They do not have a place to fall back to, uh, simply because, you know, you've been in care for years and you are separated from your family. And little to no effort is done to actually, during exit, to just make sure that you and your family are able to bond or you're able to sort that connection. And so once you exit here, you're expected to adult like any other young person who's been in the community and not like you. Uh, life expects you to behave the same way as any other person. You are faced with the same challenges, unemployment, 
Are you supposed to pursue higher education? And now that you have left care, you're perhaps not in touch with your donor. So I feel the biggest part is that caregivers do not have a fallback plan. And this just tells us how much the institutional care is not solving the problem. Because if it were, then some of these things would be sorted way earlier. Now, um, majority of caregivers will tell you, and especially during um, the COVID-19 pandemic, now we're in 2021. I, I, I would imagine that, you know, when, when these hit the, glo the globe, many people stopped working and all they did is they came together to their families and they've been indoors and working from home. But what I keep wondering most is what happens to those caregivers, those children who are no longer in the orphanages and they're out there and they do not have a family. Who was family to them during this time? Who's still a family to them during lockdown? When loneliness and everything feels like it's shattered down, who do they look up to? And so I, I continue to feel loneliness is one of the biggest problems that care leavers continue to face. And if there's anything we could do to prevent other generations from experiencing this, then we owe them that. And that is why me and you are here today. I, I have said this before that people will question and ask, you know, you. Of course, you've been in, in, in an orphanage and you've met so many people coming in. You met, you met voluntarists who I, I love tackling that topic. And I say, uh, people expect that because you've met so many people, then you have a lot of friends and you have people you could look up to. But I keep insisting that it's not the absence of people, but it's the presence of a thousand people who walked into your life but were never permanent because you're in a home and people are coming every now and then, but they are never going to be permanent. And so it creates fake attachment. So today you are hopeful, tomorrow you're not. So for example, that where I grew up, we, we, we would struggle from the basic needs. I don't want to repeat that, uh, but because of this, any, any sign of a visitor meant hope for us. And so we were excited, but they to have three day meals a day. It's, it's a day we are going to, you know, be at our best selves. <clears throat> but again, this would not happen. It would only happen during that day and upon exit, our life would go back to normal. So how many times or for how long are we going to have children having these fake selves? Today, tomorrow, the other day and the other day. Now, I remember um, when we, one of the reasons we only loved visitors is just because of the three meals. Sometimes we were asked to sing. Sometimes we would sing. And yeah, I am Christian, but I also believe that religion for a big part has been used also to exploit people. And that used to happen a lot. That we, we would sing and sing and sing and sing and people would give money. But we would expect that this money or the resources coming in amongst the quality of life in care. This was not happening. So what does it mean for an adult like me now, thinking that at one point you'd have to sing and pretend and be at the best selves just to have food? You know, it's, it's literally reducing children to some small object and just commodifying their vulnerability for your own gain. We don't want to do this with our children. We, it's, it's, it's a right for your child to eat. Feel. It's, it's their right. They have a right to feed, a right to education. But a system that has made uh, children not even draw a line between their right and their privilege, 
And so we're having to think, oh, wow, yeah, I have, if I don't sing, then I am not gonna get food. I give you a story of a different home where I know these boys says they were paraded to sing. And if you are not sing, if you are not singing louder enough, then you'll be kicked out. Like the, the teacher would mark. So they'll know John was not singing during that. And after visitors left, you would not eat. Why? Because you did not earn them income. There was no revenue that came through you. And so what this means is we are, we are exploiting, literally we're exploiting children even just beyond that very day because they grow up with these and they're going to, these are issues that they, are, they would have to deal with other adulthood. And I mean, we do not have to raise children who have to spend a, you know, a whole lifetime healing from uh, childhood wounds that were impacted on them. Now, I, I want to talk about something else are about orphanages that I also find very, something that we are still not addressing. And these are issues of poverty. We do know that there are homes that have taken in children from a family, but not if say you're five of you, then the orphanage admits two, two of you. So literally it's, it's separating you and your siblings um, and, and, and I know situations where such children have also gone to other orphanages. So you find that in a family of six, then children are in different children homes and they grow up differently. Um, this means we are literally separating children, not even from families, but even from one another. Me and my, my our firstborn Dorcas, we did not grow up together. Dorcas grew up differently, she also ended up in a foster care somewhere differently. And we are very different. But me and my two sisters were in care together. We sort of like twins, we bonded so much. I feel like if, why can't we support families and children in need of care and protection to get the package under one roof? And this roof has to be family, it has to be the community. If their home is not, you know, if they cannot, for one reason or the other, they cannot remain at their very own home, then their auntie, the grandma, my grandmother was very willing to take care of us, only that she, you know, she did not have the resources, but if she had, then would have grown up with my grandmother, so that's kinship, and in the African culture, it is very, very, very strong. We, 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 we hardly, in years back, we hardly had children going to children's homes, my grandmother, who had 15 children, one passed away um, in 2018. But out of these 15 children, none of those ended up in an orphanage. She raised the children single-heartedly because the husband was not active and was absent somewhere in Denmark. And, and he was not active in raising his children back in Kenya. But my grandmother, being a casual laborer raised 15 children by herself. And she gives a story, she says, she would buy one pair of shoes and she would literally count number one up to number five, there's John, there's Grace, there's, you know. And so today you're going, you're going to have the shoe today, tomorrow the next person, the other day the other person, you know. And they would rotate that one pair of shoes. That just said she did not have the resources to buy shoes for all of them but at least she did all she could to raise care of children. What am I trying to say? If we fast forward to my generation, I think what this needs, 
there are some families that believe all they need is a little support and a little system strengthening at the community level. And we can support these children. The other thing is for people like me who had families, what do we expect them to do once they had? What effort is anyone putting to make sure that we support the children and their families to bond? Maybe I am not in good terms with my mother. That's an example. I had not seen her for so many years. What efforts did anyone put just to see that these children and their mother connect and they are able to, you know, carry on with life? So I, for majority of the caregivers I've met, I, I still continue to share the same with them that something happened to them. And it's not just about them. It's also about their families and they have a lot of healing to do. They have a lot of forgiveness to do because you're living in the community. The orphanage is a lie. And I want to say this and clarify before any other thing that the orphanage life is a lie, whether good or bad. No, and bad, good and bad, we are going also to see that this is materially because no matter how well in, um, an orphanage is run, it can never replace a family, right? But it is a lie because Children are not going to spend 50 years in that orphanage. They'll ultimately come, come uh, exit. And so is the orphanage equipping children with the right skills that will allow them, you know, maneuver and find their way about life. So I know that caregivers are, one more point, I know that caregivers uh, do not have the social capital or the social skills that they require. They do not know, majority of them do not know how to run a family. You're exiting, you've never been in one family, so how am I expected to take care of my family and children? Others are not able to negotiate employment, so even if they get a job, how do they even negotiate? So it means they're, they're even vulnerable. Others end up in early marriages. Thank you. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, there's so much there. I mean, we could teach an entire semester on that answer that you just gave. And I, and folks, you know, I would go back and listen to that again, because if you're wondering what some of the issues are, you hit so many of them there that are so, um, you know, they're loaded. They're all, there's so much behind everything that you said there. And I've seen firsthand what you're talking about. I was sat down on a bench in the middle of the slums of Uganda and I had, they lined up three rows of kids. It was just me. And they sang three songs. And I, afterwards, I talked to the, the woman who brought me there and I said, please don't do that anymore because you're basically teaching these kids exactly what you talked about, that you are, your value is to raise money for us because they immediately asked me for money. And, and it, it's, it's something that we, you know, think is cute oftentimes and, oh, that's cute. And you know what? It may be, but it's, it's not when you look at what's behind it. Right. And, and then even when you said the idea of um, there's a lot of people, thousands of people, but you're still lonely because they're not people that are pouring into you permanently. And those are things folks that if you don't understand those things, um, we've talked a lot about it on the show, but to hear it from you, Ruth, that was so powerful, at least for me. And I, I don't want to speak for other people, but, but I know that also a lot of people will say, well, 
orphanages are doing good things and you kind of hit on that as well and well it's better than nothing and it's better than the alternatives and so on which i think begs the next question of how did you make the transition from just being somebody that could have could have easily been a victim to say oh i was poor me but you didn't you said i want to help others and i want to start making changes so what are some of those things that you know are alternatives to children growing up in orphanages that we can pursue you know or to prevent the separation that you talked about from your family what are some of those things that you're working on and how did you make the decision to be an advocate for that I come to do what I do. I think as a Christian, I would say God never wastes pain. And having gone through that pain, I think uh, there was just something that was born from that. And when you want something so bad, God and nature collaborates to make sure that he pushes you to exactly that which you want. And so for me, it was finding the exact thing that I wanted to do and and, and talk about an issue, I felt like it was so much behind the scenes because there was a lot of sending children to orphanages. There was a lot of wanting to help and the only solution that was coming up was orphanages. And so I found, I, I just found a gap and I, I decided I am going to take up that and address and see where this takes me. And to be honest, it has been rewarding and fulfilling but it has also been a very, very challenging because the greatest challenge you have is changing the mindset, the mindset of people. But at the same time, once you change the mindset, then you're able to achieve every other thing, especially in seeking justice for children. One of the ways that we can help um, children, is that what you asked? What are some of the ways we could help children in alternative care? I think is, we, we, we need to do everything possible to make sure that children grow up in families. So we are, there are still children who are at risk of separation. What are we doing? Could we empower the families? Can we look at what are the factors that are pushing children towards the orphanages in the first place? Education will come up, health will come up. You know, there are children and families who are still not able to get the best medical services for their children, even the basically, live alone the best, but even the very basic. And so we find that our children uh, today still do not go to the hospital because their families can't, can't not afford. And so for children living with disabilities, if there is the presence of an orphanage A, where they are sure that you know this burden will be taken off the shoulders of the parents, then why not? So one of the ways is that we, 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 we we seek to address those. And I think changes across the spectrum, it's not a one way. We have to talk about education systems, making education available for these children at the community level, making sure that uh, services say, uh, for the uh, children living with disabilities are available in the community and that these families are linked to that. Because truth be told, if this is not addressed, will still continue to have orphanages and more and more children being separated. And so we have to make sure that first, we ask people to support the community level and strengthen. Because if today someone asks me, what is the state of that family that you're talking about, that you raise a child? 
I, they are justified not to, to want the child to be there and to assume that orphanages are the best solution. But if we take care of the state of the family today, then it becomes easier for even communities to welcome children back home. So one of the ways that people can support is to support organizations that are supporting uh, uh, family-based care. There are organizations here which are attested. One Million Home is one of those. I know a couple of them in Kenya and others. And so just that we um, provide these resources so that they are able to, for the children who are out of family, they are able to be taken back home and reunited with their families. And for those who are still in the community, but at risk of separation could be COVID or death of parents because of COVID, then they are still can remain at home. Talk about education, which I'm so passionate about. Are we able to sponsor children from the families at the community level without having to give them a reason to live? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's really good. I mean, there's a lot of different, um, you know, there's a lot of different ways to kind of tackle this beast, right? When we talk about family separation, um, we talk about the prevalence of kids growing up in orphanages. Um, there are different ways to go about it, whether that be on the prevention side or um, looking at how can we intervene now that kids have been separated. So, um, yeah, that's that's really helpful, Ruth. And, and, you know, one of the things that you got into there, and I know something that's really close to, to your heart, um, is, is this piece around advocacy. Um, I, I would love to just kind of hear as you are, you know, a, a, an advocate in this space. Why don't you just uh, maybe describe for our audience, uh, what does advocacy mean to you? And, and specifically, what role does advocacy play um, in pursuing better care and pursuing justice, as you said, um, for orphans and vulnerable children? Maybe talk to that advocacy piece a little bit. I, for me, I, I want to answer that with the first thing, that it is through advocacy that we are here today. And we are talking about this issue because of advocacy efforts laid before by the people before us or even ourselves. And in one way or the other, we have contributed to it. And so for me, for me here, I would think what advocacy to me means, it sort of um, is, is bringing an issue to light. And for me, it's sort of zooming in into, into something, bringing uh, the right attention to it by you know whatever whatever area of influence that you have whatever uh, with whatever resources you have and you're able to bring some of these I, I want to call it the right message to the right audience so it's it's sort of zooming the right issues and bringing them to the right audience because I would not say I am advocating if I'm bringing the right message to the wrong audience if I need policy change then I need to speak to policymakers if I need donor behavior change, then I need to raise this with donors. And so it's literally, um, for me, it's speaking on behalf of, and these are children and young people, but at the same time, how am I doing it? It's just making sure that the right message goes to the right audience and we are pressing the right buttons for the right action. I, I hope that answers. Um, and so, yeah, I think that is where we are. I, I am I'm just thinking that, you know, the Think Often podcast was there because there was enough advocacy around some of these issues. And that is why we want to keep talking about them to make sure that we are pressing the right button. 
Yeah. And, and, you know, along with that, I love the way that you frame that it's making sure the right message is getting to the right audience. I, I think sometimes we're um, beating drums or, uh, or we have an idiom in the, in the U S beating a dead horse. Uh, sometimes, sometimes we are uh, just insisting on a message um, and, and it's not dissimilar from what, from what Jesus says, right? Um, whoever has ears, let them hear. There's also um, a certain indication there that maybe some people don't have ears to hear the message. So you really have to be thoughtful. You have to strategize. Uh, who, who is the one that's meant to hear this particular message? And how does that uh, integrate with uh, advocacy? So I really appreciate your response there. Right message for the right population for the right people group and and you know one of the people that i'm really or one of the groups that i'm really passionate about personally when it comes to this advocacy piece um is children and youth themselves so um and i know that this is something that you're focused on as well ruth um why is it important um to engage children and youth directly in advocacy um and how do you promote their participation um in those activities uh, allowing children to speak up on, on on their own behalf. What does that look like for you? I think it's a mystic to, to tackle the issues of our vulnerable children and failing to involve children and young people who have been through the process. I, and I think this is, this is a non-negotiable. Uh, there's a phrase where we say that the wearer of the shoe know where it hurts most. And so this is exactly, I don't know if that makes sense in English, but I, I have the translation in Swahili in my head, so you forgive me. But if, if yeah, the wearer of the shoe know where it hurts most. And so children and young people, we cannot afford to leave them behind because they have not read it, they have lived through it. They did not read through it, they lived through it. And living through means that whatever they share is something that has been literally, they have experienced, they have experienced what it is to uh, lack support after care. They have experienced what it is um, to, you know, their experience being commodified. They have experienced what it is to deny their roots for years and years and years and years, yet they, they know their backgrounds. They literally have experienced all some of these things that we are talking about. So literally leaving uh, them behind, I think it's, it's only fair to say nothing for us without us, that any other thing we're going to craft or any solution we're going to craft, who are the service recipients? Some of these things are going, um, some of these services are going to be used that the children themselves and, and the caregivers themselves. And so I think what we do is we give them, there's a principle of the car ahead. And I want to give this an example. I am a storyteller, but I'm going to tell this in two minutes. So the principle of the car ahead is that when you're driving and there's a car ahead of you and it hits a bump, then you're bound to slow down because literally the car ahead just lets you know that there is a bump. It is stupid to assume that, yeah, you cannot slow down because you know you, you sort of want to write it off and ignore the fact that the car just ahead did hit a bump. And I look at caregivers and children and I say, they have been there. They have lived through it. 
let them let you know that there is a bump ahead, that you need to deviate, that there is an accident ahead, that there is a cop ahead, that there is, you know, and so that way we are going to get things right. If we are committed to getting care right for children, then we have, we cannot ignore the voices that um, these uh, children bring. And that is why I said they did not read through it, but they lived through it. And so the experience they bring is beyond what anyone would study in the university. And so what are some of the ways that we can support their participation? I still feel this is an area that we need to address. Uh, because many times we have seen, and over the years we have seen the people respecting the right to a voice for children, and that is good. But then how do we make sure that we continue to do that in ways that are ethical and not tokenistic? Because again, we do not want to run away from commodifying children at the orphanage to commodifying care living experience. And so we want to make sure that we are getting it right. And for my from my experience, the, the best ways to make sure is that we are supporting meaningful participation, that young people can sit and they can have uh, the right seat at the right tables to get to influence and not just sharing their story. I, I many times I identify myself as many things I can identify myself as a storyteller. But what I'll tell you is we cannot reduce young people with care experience, we cannot reduce them to storytellers. We want to know, they have shared their story. What is the next point of action and how can they you know, influence that? How can they influence policy? How can they, yeah, stories are good because stories move and it's because of stories like ours that we have to address this, that is fine. But what can we do beyond that? Can we make sure that even at their boardrooms, if you, you know, can we have a, a care leaver who's seated as a board member? If you have an advisory board in your organizations, you're talking about care reforms, can we make sure that one position is given to them? If we're talking about children living with disabilities in your office, um, you know, anyone who's a human resource person and listening, you have a care liver in your organization, give them a job and let them critique the systems because they must be part of decisions, um, of making decisions about very serious issues that were um, they were taking uh, some of the decisions that were made on their life and they did not have a chance to make those decisions, allow them to have a chance to make decisions on behalf of their children because if we do fail to do this, then we are risking to be tokenistic. We are risking, and let's not be the people who run and say, hey, I'm actually just remember there's someone who can come and give us their story. From experience, Kaliva say, they do not want to be, the, you know, just another vote that you run to once you have organized everything and now you think you can bring them over. So number one, I'm saying two things. Let us make sure that we involve Kalivas and give them a chance to influence, but let us not reduce care livers to storytellers. Otherwise we are risking commodifying the care living experience. We want to make sure that they are part of every process and they're going to influence our policy and programming. That is so good, Ruth. Uh, thank you for that. Thank you for everything that you've been uh, sharing with us today. I think we have so much, well, not I think, I know we have so much to learn from you. 
Um, and I've already done that. And now, again, like I said beforehand, uh, we all get to learn. I get to share it with others, which is fantastic. So we, we, you know, you've listened to the podcast at least a little bit. So, you know, we have a couple questions at the end here that we ask everybody. And I, I just, you know, you, you have impacted so many. I know listening to you has helped so many understand how we can love orphan and vulnerable children with excellence. But what, what have you watched, uh, read, or listened to that has really impacted how you think um, about um, really how we can love the children that, that you are fighting so hard to uh, ensure that we can love well? Carol, Phil, did you did you ask what is the question? Yeah, I had a narration, but what what's the question? It's what have you watched, read, or listened to? Um, so any books or or documentaries or any podcasts or any other things that you have listened to, um, or watched or read that uh, have impacted your thinking on how we can love orphaned and vulnerable children with excellence. I I would, I would go back home. <coughs> um, and home is I would say Uganda because it's just um, next door. Um, and there is a there's a program called Smile Africa. And, and Smile Africa is run by an amazing woman called Ruth. So biases aside, the program is an amazing program. I'll tell you a little bit about Smile Africa. So Smile Africa began um, by bringing uh, uh, street children together. And every day, Ruth would purpose to feed them to serve a meal because she thought the only reason these children are on the street, um, especially the dustbin, then it's just because they do not have food. So perhaps the best way to stop them from you know, feeding on that and stuff is to feed them. So she, she got this big uh, piece of land and she fenced around. And every day the street kids in Uganda would come and she would feed them. They started from 100 to 100 to 500 a day. And now she realized once they feed, they, they would not go back to the streets. They wanted to be there. And so she, she, there was need for her to offer something more beyond food. What happened is later on, Smile Africa developed and it, it became an institution. What I love most about this godly woman is that she says when she she built so she built a school and she also built a small baby home where you know people started bringing very young babies and even parents would abandon their very young babies to this Smile Africa baby home. Now what she figured out was that I need to protect these children, so what I need to do is to build another fence. So she built two two walls. And every time she would still feel like, I think these kids are exposed to the outside community. Let me build another fence. Now she would build another wall. What she did not realize is that, the, you know, the many walls she was setting up, she was literally excluding children from the community. She thought she was doing the right thing because she cared so much and she really wanted to protect them. And so she would set up another wall. She would do another perimeter wall. And this was literally just to protect children. She did not know better. Smile Africa, as we speak today, has become a reintegration uh, center. It has been reuniting children back to their families. And this was after she got to know better. 
and now she can do better. So Ruth in one of the many testimonies said, she, she took one of the children who went back to their families, uh, Ruth and one social worker went to visit. And when she got there, what changed her mind is that the children would come and give her a hug and then they would run back to hold their aunties. And she said, I could not believe that I've been with these children in the institution for all these years, but they do not wanna go with me. I haven't changed. I am still the rule that cared. I'm still the mother that cared, but that was a point of reflection. Like what has exactly happened? And that moment is when she knew that no matter how well, physically, no matter how, you know, what kind of care that you give children outside of their family, you can never replace with their parent. The reason this to me is an inspiration and the reason why I think Smile Africa remains to be, you know, my, you know, I, I, I can talk about them is because she was once like a voluntarist who travels to Africa to do good, knowing that I am coming to do good down to Africa, but then later realized actually that is not it. And she's now championing for the right model of care. So I feel, and I believe, like she said, she had a calling to take care of uh, the needy. Her calling is still on. It's people, people would ask, did God change? Did the calling change? The calling did not change. She's still doing exactly what she was called to do, to give hope to the hopeless. And she's right now, you know, championing for the right model of care. You, you talk to uh, Ruth Kahawa, she will, she is the best care reform advocate. And I'm going to make sure that you could perhaps, you know, just get a chance to listen to the story of Smile Africa. And you love that once we change the mindset, like I said in the beginning, you have no, you have no idea how much you can achieve when people change easily. Yeah. So, no, that's that's so good, Ruth, and, and such a good mentor example of, of what this can look like. And um, you know, sharing that story of of the other Ruth uh, there in Uganda, um, definitely an organization that that uh, I'm gonna look up myself. And uh, we'll definitely uh, uh, share their website uh, in the show notes as well. Would invite um, our audience to always check out the show notes and and to follow up with some of this great content uh, that our guests are bringing to us. Um, you know, along with that, and and uh, Ruth, uh, I would love to hear from you as kind of the final question: What person, uh, individual person, has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphaned and vulnerable children with excellence? You've had quite the journey with a lot of different people uh, uh, that have been a part of your story, um, that have been a part of your life. Uh, what person has most impacted the way that you think about uh, the things that we've discussed today? Oh, I thank you so much. What person? So it has to be one person, right? Um, I think. For me, and uh, Pastor Francis Chan has for years loved children in the poor. And what the reason this still stands for me is years of advocacy has shown that sometimes we can talk to people about the way they are giving, and one of the things that people will do, they that they tend to withdraw. There are some people who feel no, you're extreme. Uh, 
just allow me to do whatever I want to do with my time and resources, uh, because you know you cannot assume authority on someone's resources. But after meeting Francis, um, and I appreciate for uh, the friendship me and him have continued to share, is to see how he's continued to give himself out despite no, you know, even after knowing that you know this is not the right way and this is the right way. I feel like majority of people and given their, their position and the status, they are not really flexible to what other op options and what other alternatives that we have. And so they're really fixed on what they want to give. But I feel <clears throat> the fact that he's continued to open up to learning and, 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 and knowing the best ways to give and support children, I think that really stands for me. I am saying this because I have previous experience interacting closely with people of equal status and they have not cared to even change their mindset. And so I admire him as a person. I admire him as a man of God. But more importantly, I admire that he's literally taken over this and he's able to talk about it to other people. The reason I want to compare with what I just said about you, when God calls you to something, whether the road changes or becomes rough, you still be committed to the journey. And that is what I've continued to see. That there are people who set out to do good for children and no matter the challenges, they are still set to find the solutions for children. So Francis Chan still stands for me. Thank yeah, you. That's, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, Francis is... Uh, just such a, an inspiration for so many people. And, you know, that conversation around, um, you know, church leaders and um, how they continue to grow and learn, right? And that's the discipleship path. Um, none of us are supposed to be um, stagnant. Um, all of us are supposed to be um, learning and growing. And and what I hear, you know, your answer is, um, and Francis is just such a humble guy, um, but, uh, you know, his ability to keep learning, but stay engaged. And, and I think that that's, that's what this is all about. And that's a conversation that we're going to continue this season as well. Um, looking at that piece. So, uh, wonderful answer there, uh, Ruth, uh, it has been, uh, such a joy to, uh, have you on the podcast. I just want to thank you on behalf of our listeners, those that are going to, um, uh, hear this and continue to learn. And uh, so thank you so much, Ruth. Uh, it was a pleasure having you on. Well, just a great conversation there with Ruth. I feel like anytime we get to get out of our own bubble and hear somebody that's coming from a different experience, life experience, different professional experience, um, I just feel enlightened. And and I really feel like that's the case with, with Ruth and her sharing not only her experience, not only her story, as she was even uh, uh, commending us towards the end to not only listen to the story, but also listen to that expertise piece. And I feel like Ruth really models that. So Phil, what was uh, something that kind of stuck out to you or, or, or how did you feel about uh, this conversation with Ruth today? I mean, like I said, I wasn't, I wasn't just saying that when I said it could be an entire semester. There was so much stuff. It's so much of actually what I do teach in the class. I teach on a lot of this stuff at a university. Um, and, you know, what you just said there, just because a story is compelling doesn't make it true, doesn't make it right, right? I mean, there's a lot of stories about stuff. So to have the both and is really important. 
but it is important to have both because the story is important as well, right? So sometimes we just have the, the expertise, quote, unquote, and there's truths thrown down our throat. And it's like, well, that's missing the reality on the ground, right? And so it is a, a theory and practice, right? And so a lot of this, what we're hearing, I mean, what we heard today was both. Um, and it was fantastic. And, and I, I mean, I said it during the interview and it's just, it's one of the things, it's a couple of things that just really stuck out to me is when she said, I was, I was lonely. And that's mm -hmm. the main thing I hear. People are like, but there's so many people surrounding you. Yeah. You know, there's people who are lonely, who are in families too, but they feel like, we have, a t it's like what we say, there's a lot of noise around us, but is there anything worth listening to? Mm. Right. It's almost like that same idea of there are so many people around us, but do any of them really care about me? Mm -hmm. And that's what I've heard over and over as I've talked with people that are, you know, people who have been in orphanages and have been in foster care and have been in different things. It's this idea of, I, I just don't know that anyone really loves me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and that's, I think, yeah. Yeah. yeah well, so that's I what just really think, stuck out to me. Yeah. No, I hear you, man. And, and I think it's, you know, as humans, we are created for intimacy. We are created for community. And if that is not at the forefront of any of our initiatives or our engagements when it comes to serving uh, orphans, vulnerable children, separated kids, at risk youth, um, if, if we're not thinking through that and making that like, you know, and one of the things that she said there was permanency. Um, you know, if permanency is not an important, is not at the forefront of our mind, we're gonna miss the boat. Um, you know, yep. when, before the, before we hit record today, you were talking about, you know, your mother, right. And, and, uh, and just some of the, some of the stuff with your family. And it's the same with me, right. Um, as men, uh, now full grown men with our own families, we still have those familial permanent connections. Um, mm -hmm. and you know, for kids that are growing up separated from family, um, they don't always, they don't always have that. They, they often don't have that. Yeah. So it's really important that we put permanency at the forefront. Well, uh, on that note, yeah. we forgot to say that Ruth, you know, at the end of that interview, she said she was weak because she has been sick. Yeah. And the fact that she did that interview and you, you never would have known it. I mean, she's such a, as I said, she's a powerhouse and, and it's, it's, a, it's a woman who is, is making a difference. And so um, I think it's encouraging to all of us. Like when we're passionate about something, man, it comes through. Um, and so the, the, the recommendation I do have today, which is, uh, it's this video by Vadi Bakum. If you're not familiar with him, it's, it's V O D D I E B A U C H A M. And we'll have it in the show notes, but it's called why you can trust the Bible. It's just a fantastic, it's about, it's a little under an hour, but it is so worth it. I actually just did a class at a, uh, my, my church here in Northern California on that topic, used it as one of the main sources. And it is, it's such a fantastic, um, just, a, it, I mean, it's relatively quick, but it goes through the ideas that really help us understand why we can trust the Bible, um, you know, among so many other things that are out there. Yeah. And so um, going back to that, there's so much noise out there, but what is the truth? There's so many stories, but just because there's a compelling story doesn't make it true. Just because the Bible is a compelling story doesn't make it true. So what does, right? So that is, are the things that um, really, really good. 
Um, I'm going to just leave it there because I don't want to, you know, give you the shortcut so that you don't go listen to it. Go listen to it. Well worth your time. If you profess to be a Christian, um, it's something that it's important for you to actually understand and know. So, um, and I learned a ton when I listened to it. So anyway, um, that's my, that's, that's my good. recommendation. I'm gonna check it out. That's good. I'm going to check it out. Wow. Well, this has been a lot of fun, Phil. Uh, thanks. It's great to see you, man. And, uh, and, uh, look forward to uh, getting this out for our listeners. Absolutely. So uh, as with everything else, as with every episode we have here, folks, um, just want to encourage you to take everything you're learning here on this show and use it to help you understand how you can love orphaned and vulnerable children better and better each and every day. Thanks a lot. Have a great week. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.